0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: A bipartisan postal reform bill intended to bring financial relief to the Postal Service may have equally large implications for the rest of the federal workforce. That's according to the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. NARF says the bill could ultimately raise premiums for employees and retirees in the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. Now, that legislation has momentum, and for the first time in years, members of Congress seem excited about a postal bill they say has a real shot of becoming law. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco joins me now with the latest. Lots of moving parts to unpack here, but let's start at the beginning, Nicole, What does the bill do that NARF thinks might raise health care premiums for everyone else.
0: So the bill itself is called the Postal Service Reform Act, and you've probably heard a little bit about it, you know, just in talking to our colleague, Jory Heckman, about the bill. A lot of bipartisan support, the... Chairman and ranking members of both the House Oversight Committee and the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee have introduced their own bills, essentially their own versions of this bill. And what it would do, I mean, it's billed as a postal bill, but really it does create some pretty big changes to the federal employees health benefits program. So first, it would essentially split the FEHB into two. And it would separate about 2 million postal workers and retirees into their own healthcare system called the Postal Service Health Benefits Program. And if you're a current employee, you would just move to that postal program. And eventually, once you turn age 65, you would be required to enroll in Medicare Part B. Now, if you're a current postal retiree, you have an option. Uh, You can enroll in Medicare Part B, and you would essentially join this postal uh, healthcare system as your secondary payer. But if you don't want to, you don't have to. You don't have to opt into Medicare Part B. And in that case, you would stay within the federal program, the FEHB. So what NARF says, and this is based on, you know, their analysis of previous bills that have contemplated very similar uh, provisions, although maybe in a slightly different order and arrangement, is that what this proposal essentially does is it shrinks the size of the risk pool. So currently, there's about 8 million people in the FEHB uh, insurance program. That's employees, retirees, uh, their uh, beneficiaries or family members, essentially. And by creating this separate, separate postal system, it would take 2 million people out. So Your buying power, the buying power of 8 million people, is reduced a little bit. And then by allowing postal retirees the choice of enrolling in Medicare Part B, you're essentially giving those who do not choose to enroll in Medicare the chance to stay in the federal program. And those people typically are, you know, they're age 65, they're older, they have more health conditions, and are therefore more expensive to insure. And so those are the issues that NARF has.
1: So basically making the pool smaller, but also making it higher risk at the same exactly. time. Interesting. And the rationale in doing these moves is that because Congress took away the prepayment requirement for future retirees of postal service, they're trying to mitigate the post payment, so to speak, for when they actually do retire.
0: Yeah, that's right. And the bottom line here is that this bill is designed to save the Postal Service money. That's the whole goal. You know, we've all seen the news, and we've all probably experienced this ourselves in the last year or so—dwindling service from the Postal Service and and all of that. So that was really what members of Congress were after here. And they say that eliminating the pre-funding mandate, which the Postal Service hasn't really paid in the past couple of years to begin with, but eliminating that and this Medicare integration plan would ultimately save them about $45 billion over 10 years. And for many members of Congress, that's worth it. What we don't quite know yet is what the monetary impact would be on the FEHB and premiums themselves. You know, NARF believes that they will rise, but we don't know exactly how much. The entity that would do that analysis uh, it could be the Congressional B- Budget Office, but it could also be the Office of Personnel Management.
1: Sure. We are speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. Now, these postal reform ideas have been kicking around for years. Why are they gaining momentum now, do you think?
0: Well, I think there's broad desire in Congress to do something when it comes to USPS. I mean, they've been talking about this issue for years. As you've said, they've kicked around many of these same ideas for years. I think everyone acknowledges the pre-funding mandate. Maybe that wasn't the best idea, and so it it does seem like there's momentum. There's real interest from a broad coalition of members in Congress to get something done. I'll note, though, Tom, that you know, back in 2012, the Senate considered actually a very similar arrangement for the Postal Health Insurance Program. Essentially, they again, in 2012, uh, proposed splitting postal employees and retirees into their own health program. And according to a past article on this, OPM said that premiums, if under that arrangement, could go up by 10% for employees in their three largest FEHB plans. So it's that kind of past historical analysis that has organizations like NARF a little concerned, and it's why they want to see some additional analysis moving forward here.
1: Yeah, I guess you would have to look at some of the historical payouts of individuals in certain groups and then kind of mix that in with what's been happening price-wise over the past few years without them. And somehow, maybe it's a calculus that you could come up with a reasonable estimate of how much premiums might go up. And that's that's the analysis we have yet to see anyone do.
0: Right. And I think the concern from organizations like NARF is that so I'll be completely clear. This bill is in the early stages of, um, you know, beca- potentially becoming law. However, there is real momentum. We're seeing that. And the bill already cleared the House Oversight Committee through that markup. And no mention of this issue came up whatsoever. And I think that's why organizations like NARF are a little concerned, saying, hey, this is a big part of the bill. And maybe we should look at some of the data on the FEHB and the potential impact there before we move forward.
1: Yes, because you have the business and periodical and bulk mailing groups all coalescing around it. They like the idea because they want Postal Service to save its way to even keel and not price hike its way to even keel because they're the ones that pay the bills. So everywhere you look, Postal Service, as usual, is under conflicting pressures here. So do you think this has a chance to get up from committee level to full congressional level? What are some of the big guys saying?
0: So what's next at this point, Tom, is the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, which has jurisdiction over Medicare, does need to mark this up. And there's a potential impact on Medicare as well, which is something that we haven't really even talked about. And I don't think we would potentially know the impact there. Um, But it does have a couple more steps to go into the House before uh, the House might have a full vote on this. There's no Senate committee markup scheduled as of yet, I would note there are some interesting statements I think coming out about this particular bill. So we asked OPM, you know, what they think about this, if they have any concerns, and if they're working on any kind of analysis. And the response we got back is that OPM is working with Congress to address concerns involving how the health care provisions of the legislation will impact the cost and delivery of health care benefits and services for those in FEHB. I checked in with Uh, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, who's the chairwoman of the House Oversight and Reform Committee. And she says the Postal Service has been in a precarious financial position for over a decade. She introduced this bill to help put the Postal Service on a sustainable financial footing. And the bill already has received strong bipartisan support. She says she's also a strong advocate for federal employees and retirees and uh, is working closely with stakeholders to ensure that the bill that passes the House addresses their concerns. I'll also note that a Democratic aide on that committee noted that the Medicare integration piece that we talked about, they really view that as central to the bill. And it'll be interesting to see if they do consider changes to that exactly how it does, because I have a feeling that it would ultimately maybe make that savings column a little less high for USPS if you know they do in fact consider changes there.
1: Yeah. So it could be a take it all or nothing happens type of situation.
0: It could be. But, you know, organizations like NARF say that it doesn't have to. And and I'll note, you know, NARF has been interested in postal reform for a long time. They have a lot of members who are retired postal workers. They are happy about the, pre-fan, the pre-funding mandate gone. And they like even that retirees would have an option, a choice of whether or not to enroll in Medicare Part B, but they are not thrilled about the potential impact on the rest of the federal workforce. They do believe that the bill could be tweaked in a way that resolves some of these issues.
1: Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
2: Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me.
3: And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation.
2: Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style?
3: uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward.
2: <laughs> Perfect.
3: that I have uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was a that was beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. and But it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community Uh, of of them, of of what I could.
2: That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who was the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them?
3: You know, again, I can't say that I I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership saying that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King.
2: Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there?
3: Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated, and the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees and and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader. Uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the secretary of commerce and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor, we call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And And, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do.
2: Rick? Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today.
3: But well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
2: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.